Welcome to the New Books Network. Have you ever wondered why Paul leaves the resurrection discussion in 1 Corinthians 15 for the end of the letter? Have you pondered how 1 Corinthians 15 functions as the climax to 1 Corinthians? What precisely is Paul's rhetorical strategy in 1 Corinthians? Tune in as we speak with Timothy Christian, whose recent book answers those questions by exploring insinuatio, the Greco-Roman rhetorical convention used to address prejudiced or controversial topics like resurrection at the end of a discourse. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Timothy J. Christian is adjunct professor of Christian Studies and Philosophy at Asbury University and associate pastor of Wesley UMC in Canton, Illinois. Tim, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. It's great to be here. So Tim, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'll start uh, with my family a little bit. I'm a father of four kids, and uh, my wife and I, uh, we've been married for 14 years. We're high school sweethearts. She's a licensed clinical social worker and has her own private practice, and so that's uh, that's what we do. And we manage a, a big house full of kids and that's fun, uh, for work. Um, I'm the associate pastor at Wesley United Methodist church in Canton, Illinois. And, uh, I have over 10 years of, uh, pastoral ministry experience, been a youth pastor, been a worship pastor, lead pastor, associate pastor, done pretty much done it all. And so, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, in terms of, uh, my educational journey, um, I have three degrees from Asbury institutions, but uh, my my uh, undergrad journey actually began at Western Illinois University. So um, I'm I'm a musician, and so I I started out college studying uh, jazz studies, and so I double majored in jazz trumpet and jazz bass. I play a lot of instruments. So after a year there, I felt a call uh, to ministry or uh, to study ministry uh, in school. So I transferred to Greenville College, studied pastoral ministry there for a couple of years. And then my wife and I got married. Uh, We had a long distance relationship. She was at Asbury University or college back then. And so uh, we got married and I transferred there. So I had my senior year and super senior year at Asbury University and ended up majoring in Bible and theology um, and uh, just hopped right across the street to Asbury Theological Seminary. It's a great fit. Uh, I did my Master of Divinity there, knew that I was going to go on to do doctoral work. So I just focused everything that I did uh, as much as I could and grieved and New Testament studies, and and then uh, did uh, ended up staying there for my PhD uh, as well. I started with Ben Witherington the third, and uh, and Craig Keener as well, who are just colossal uh, giants in the fields of uh, New Testament studies. So I took all their classes and wrote my dissertation under uh, Dr. Witherington, and graduated in uh, 2019. So uh, that's that's a little bit about me. Now, the subtitle of your book is 1 Corinthians 15 as Insinuatio. Would you explain the concept of Insinuatio for our listeners? Sure. So Insinuatio is uh, the Latin technical term uh, for the rhetorical device known as uh, the indirect opening to a speech or um, uh, sometimes called a subtle introduction. And so uh, there were two types of introductions that orators could use in a speech. They could be direct and upfront. They called that the principium, 
or they could be um, indirect or subtle, and that would be insinuatio. Uh, the the direct approach uh, says at the beginning of the speech what the speech is going to be about um, in a very straightforward manner uh, and just sets the course and the order just you know identifies, here's the issue at hand that I'm going to speak to. Uh, that's the principium. But the, uh, the other type of exordium uh, or introduction is... Um, is called insinuatio. It's indirect. It doesn't exactly uh, state front where the order is going with the speech. And uh, the, the reason most often is because there's some sort of prejudice that is present that does not allow the speaker uh, to be upfront about where uh, he might be going with the speech. Now, um, the, the prejudice could come from three different things. It could be prejudice against the speaker himself or herself. Maybe the audience doesn't trust the speaker. Uh, maybe they don't like the speaker. And so, um, and so there could be prejudice in, in that way. And so they might have to be in indirect a little bit and not come out swinging, so to speak. Uh, there could be prejudice against the speech itself. Maybe the audience knows that the speaker is going to talk way too long, so they're not going to be willing to listen for a long time. Um, there could be uh, maybe it's going to be too short or maybe afterwards uh, the speaker didn't talk long enough. And, uh, and so they could be prejudiced against that. Um, maybe the, uh, speaker, um, uh, talks in a different style than what the audience wants. And so there could be prejudice in that way. Um, and then the third way is, is that there could be prejudice against the subject matter, uh, just what the, um, what the order is going to be talking about. And so in the case of uh, 1 Corinthians, um, a large majority of the Christians there are Gentile Christians, um, and Gentiles uh, are prejudiced uh, against the notion of dead corpses being resurrected out of their graves. It's, you know, I, I like to call it a zombie apocalypse for a modern day, uh, you know, equivalence. But um, Greeks and Romans, they, they were predisposed against the Jewish notion of resurrection. And so what's Paul going to do about that? Uh, is he going to be up front and unduly offend the Corinthians at the beginning of his letter? by bringing up such a disputed notion or is he going to merely hint at it up front and later throw down the gauntlet and you'll just have to read the book to find out what i think about that but you could probably uh figure that out for yourself but insinuatio is where an order or a writer because uh rhetoric in the ancient world as today was for both speaking and for writing but it's where an order indirectly and subtly at the beginning of the speech, hints at the main issue or problem in which they plan to address much later in their discourse after they've established rapport with the audience. Sometimes they even butter them up a little bit and prepare them for it. Um, and after they've said everything else that they need to say before they finally throw down the gauntlet and address the main issue or the main problem directly at the end of the speech. And so insinuatio as being an indirect approach, it's not completely devoid of being direct and to the point, but it's, but it's about arrangement. Where are you going to be direct? Um, are you going to be direct up front or, or later? And so in my, my research, um, I've, I've, I've shown that, um, 
or discovered that that Greeks actually, because there's there's a different flavor between Greek rhetoric and Roman rhetoric. Um, the Greeks actually didn't use insinuatio all that much. They actually didn't have a full blown own theory of this rhetorical technique. And why is it? Well, I think it's a cultural thing. Greeks uh, tended uh, to be so upfront and in your face about everything in the ancient world, their culture didn't beat around the bush. They, they just, they just jumped right to it. This is what I'm going to talk about. Even if there was prejudice there, they'd be like, I'm going to just address the prejudice. But Romans, on the other hand, they were much more suave. They would butter butter you up first before knocking you down and so insinuatio then kind of is a a roman rhetorical development that we see in the history of of rhetoric and so um so insinuatio in fact is direct it's just direct at the end of the speech um though it's indirect at the beginning of the speech, uh, if that makes sense. And so oftentimes when, when, uh, that issue finally comes up at the end of the speech, it's oftentimes a refutatio, which is the technical term for a refutation, um, where you refute the audience's prejudice, or maybe if your, um, your opponent, your speaking opponent, you know, if you're in court or something has already won over the audience, you have to refute, you know, what, uh, their points. And so oftentimes when that insinuated topic at the beginning becomes revealed at the end, oftentimes it'll function as a refutatio or refutation, um, uh, refuting the prejudice against whatever it was, whether it was against the speaker or against the speech itself or against uh, the subject matter. So in short, um, insinuatio, it's the rhetorical tactic uh, used to address prejudice and not further exacerbate a heated situation and instead delicately walk the line without creating any further undue offense. And there are lots of speeches in Greek and Roman literature that employ insinuatio. My book documents several. Um, and, and there are also several in the New Testament as well. And just to give a couple examples, um, uh, Stephen's speech in Acts 7, um, and, and uh, he, he takes this, when he's addressing the Jewish leaders, uh, you know, before they stone him and he becomes the first martyr of the church, Stephen's almost entirety of his speech is buttering up his listeners. He's, he's, he recounts the, the whole history of Israel to say, see, look, I'm in line with all of you. We agree on this. And then finally, the last few lines, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, and you murdered Jesus, <laughs> uh, who is Lord of all. And that's when they pick up stones to stone him. And then finally, he says, you know, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's that's the final most offensive thing uh, that that. Uh, and so that so Stephen's speech is an example of insinuatio. Um, Paul's Areopagus speech when he's in Athens in Acts 17, it's a, it's a pretty short speech it's definitely a summary of what paul um presented there at athens but you know he butters them up he's he's like uh i see that you have this you know statue to the unknown god you know he, instead of just coming right out and saying hey you're a bunch of idolaters you know he's he he builds that connection with them and then finally at the end the last thing he talks about is how um is well he doesn't act well yeah well he he says uh, he mentions the resurrection and the coming judgment. And so, you know, after, after that, 
um, pretty pretty much the the Athenians are like, well, uh, that's really interesting. We don't really agree, but we'd like to hear more. And so uh, that's where that's another example where Paul um, uh, uses insinuatio. The last one that I'll mention is uh, that many scholars have argued that Paul uses insinuatio in Romans chapters nine through eleven. The first eight chapters of Romans, uh, in general, Paul is pretty much recounting what Christians everywhere believe in a general sense. Um, but you know, uh, the the propositio uh, or the the main uh, argument of Romans is that the that the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Greek, uh, Romans 1, uh, 16 and 17, righteousness of God revealed first for the Jew, then for the Greek. And there are times in Romans one through eight where, you know, Paul kind of addresses the Jews and says, Hey, you know, you think you're right with God. You're not. And then with the Gentiles, Oh, you think you're right. So he levels the playing ground, but then the major issue that uh, social issue that Paul has to address is the, uh, the Roman Gentile Christians ethnocentrism. They think, oh, God's abandoned his first chosen people. And so we're the real people of God. And so they think they're thinking so highly of themselves. But Paul waits eight chapters before, you know, most scholars would say that uh, the majority of the Christians in Rome were Gentile Christians and that and so he he waits eight long chapters before he finally throws down the gauntlet and says, hey, God hasn't forsaken his first chosen people. And if he did, he could forsake you too. You know, like what's, what's to stop him. So no, all Israel will be saved. And God has worked out this, you know, crazy irony here for when the Jews, you know, rejected the gospel. Well, then it went to the Gentiles and then that's going to provoke the Jews later on to come to Christ. Well, so anyway, so that's another example of insinuatio. So tell us where you see the exordium and probatio aspects in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the exordium proper would be first Corinthians chapter one verses, uh, four through nine. And, um, here, here, Paul really lays out, um, and, uh, rhetorical scholars would probably call this a divisio or a partitio as well. It's where you divide out um, all the things that you're going to talk about in your introduction, in your exordium. And so, um, so he's, he says, uh, Paul says in, in verse five, in every way you've been enriched in him in speech. And then chapters one through four, Paul kind of corrects the Corinthians pursuit of philosophical eloquence and speech uh, in, in those first four chapters. Uh, then again, in verse uh, one, five, you've been enriched in knowledge of every kind. And so chapters eight, nine, and 10 really deal with knowledge. You know, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Uh, you know, you know, you know, some of you know that idols are no idols at all. Um, but, uh, but, but you're using your knowledge to harm your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, you're not living out love. Um, and, and so there, there's, there's that that comes up. Um, one, uh, one seven, Paul says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. And that's, you know, we got three long chapters, chapters 12, 13 and 14 on spiritual gifts, um, where, you know, Paul, uh, 
again, addresses a problem that they're having with that. And then, um, and then uh, Paul does not, and this is the insinuatio um, that, that I'm arguing for. In verses 7 and 8, he says, uh, he doesn't say resurrection, because he doesn't want to say resurrection right up front. He says, but instead he uses eschatological end time language, coming of second coming of Christ language. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that right there is the insinuating, because then later in chapter 15, he talks about the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, the the end, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he identifies as, as you know, something that happens then is the resurrection. Um, he identifies there, and so, um, so that would be the exordium proper, uh, verses four through nine. Um, the first three verses could be counted in that. Um, but it's it's actually it's more of like the epistolary opening, you know, identifying the 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 sender and the recipients and whatnot. But um, verse uh, ten, one ten is often seen as the propositio uh, or the uh, the thesis of of the whole letter, and so First uh, Corinthians uh, one ten. Uh, just pulling it up here real quick. Uh, 110 says, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And now Margaret Mitchell is, uh, is the scholar who has identified this. She's a rhetorical scholar. Uh, she did her dissertation in, in the 80, late 80s, early 90s, has written the definitive work on uh, 1 Corinthians being a, a unified letter. Um, she got rid of the partition theories. And the big thing uh, well, from, er, from German scholars who were saying, oh, this is many letters combined. And so she, she argues that all of 1 Corinthians um, is centered in this theme of unity and Paul bringing unity among division. And so then we have the probatio, as you uh, talked about, uh, the probatio or the the proofs, the main arguments that are going to support this thesis uh, would, and, and I, I basically see it from 1 Corinthians 1, 11, all the way through to uh, chapter 16, verse 12. Um, some will like actually Margaret Mitchell argues that it ends in 1557 and that 1558, the last verse of chapter 15, it, she argues that that last verse is the peroratio or the conclusion for the whole, uh, the whole letter. I, I think that chapter 15, the whole verses one through 58 are the, are the final probatio, if you will, the big major end with a bang. Verses 16, 1 through 12, I think are kind of like falling action. He talks about the Jerusalem collection and a few other little minor things. And then verse 13 uh, of chapter 16, 16, 13, kind of summarizes and condenses uh, many of the, the themes uh, that have been already at play uh in the letter and so um 
it says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith and, you know, the faith being the cross. And now, you know, he's talked about the resurrection of Christ. Um, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. You know, love was this key theme all throughout. So I think, I think verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16 really give us that um, final pararatio or emotional appeal uh, in a conclusion form. So uh, those, those would be the, the main uh, parts. One thing that I would, uh, if, if you're reading uh, a commentary on uh, a rhetorical commentary, like uh, Ben Witherington's has a rhetorical commentary, basically, I think on, yeah, now he has a commentary on the whole New Testament. But if you, if you read one of those, uh, sometimes, uh, and uh, in, in others as well, because there's more than just his. Sometimes um, folks will just talk about probatio in general. Just, just uh, I'd say make a mental note. There are two types of probatio. There's confirmatio, where you confirm your thesis. And then the other part, the other kind of proof or argument is a refutatio or refutation. So, um, so sometimes uh, you might see confirmatio or, or probatio, and they're kind of used interchangeably. Um, but really, confirming your thesis and arguing against the thesis of your opponent, um, they're both under the umbrella of probatio. So that's that's a little minor detail <laughs> that I like to just throw out there for folks, because it can be confusing, all these Latin terms that, you know, maybe you don't know all that much about. So that's a little nuance. Tim, would you explain for us now how chapter 15 functions as the climax to 1 Corinthians? Sure. Yeah. Like actually my original title of my dissertation, because this is my dissertation reworked um, and published with for Brill. Uh, but my original title was Paul and the Rhetoric of Insinuatio. And then my subtitle was how 1 Corinthians 15 functions rhetorically as the climax of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, but that's a really long subtitle. So, I mean, my two main uh, questions that I go after in this book that I was just, I was just so curious about um, and what drove my research was how does chapter 15 function as the climax and why? And, and it wasn't just a question I had. Calvin asked this, uh, John Chrysostom asked this, or at least tried to answer it, you know, way back in the three and four hundreds. This has been a perennial question for a long time. Why does Paul leave this big, long discussion of resurrection for the end? And so uh, when I learned about insinuatio, I went, oh, oh, you know what? I think that's what Paul's doing. Uh, I think that makes sense. You know, you, you start and you end with your strongest arguments and you usually end with your strongest argument. And, um, and so uh, I think insinuatio brings it to a climax in, in a very short uh, uh, stated way. But most scholars today, uh, I found in my research, most scholars do in fact say, yes, chapter 15 is the climax, because you might be saying, well, is it the climax? You know, um, Rudolf Boltmann in the early 1900s, um, he thought that chapter 13 was the climax because it's talking about love. Um, and then before that, a lot of German scholarship 
said there is no climax because this is multiple letters combined. So they couldn't be, there's no unified argument at all. It's just a laundry list of issues that Paul addresses from multiple letters. So, um, so, but most scholars today do in fact say that chapter 15 is the climax. The problem that I found in my research was that not very many scholars then explained how it's, how it is. And, and there were a few that that, that did or, or did in a brief way. Um, I call them the major proponents. There are four of them. Um, Karl Barth in his uh, book, The Resurrection of the Dead, wrote in, uh, well, it was, anyways, he wrote in 1933 and, and just showed how, uh, show, he, he argued that the red thread of the whole letter was, was the resurrection issue. Uh, the d- denial of the resurrection, and he did it in a really interesting theological way. Um, and I can't, I'll, you know, I won't get into the details there. But um, uh, then uh, Margaret Mitchell, she sides with Bart, but she only sh- she has a different axe to grind, and so she doesn't spend a whole lot of time going into how chapter fifteen is the climax. She just kind of notes it. Um, and spends about, you know, 10 to 12 pages on it instead of, you know, this whole work of mine, which is all about this. And then uh, N.T. Wright in his The Resurrection of the Son of God, he gives a very, very long, thorough explanation and and ties the eschatology in the whole letter. Um, he's, I think he says something like, squeeze this letter at any point and resurrection comes oozing out. Or, or maybe it's eschatology comes oozing out because uh, and I just love that quote. So he he takes a theological theme and 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 shows how eschatology builds to a climax to chapter fifteen, and then there's uh and then there's uh Matthew Malcolm is the fourth and final major proponent as I call him. Uh, he he uh he sees there being an inclusio of the you know probatio, basically chapters one through fifteen. He says that Paul starts with the cross. And in chapters one through four, and he uh, he just talks about how you need to live cruciform lives. And then chapter 15 ends with talking about the resurrection of Christ and resurrection of believers and that all of the ethical issues that all addresses in between in chapters five through 14, basically um, they, they find their meaning in living out the cross and and uh, trusting God who raises the dead, and so um, so he he really takes this kind of uh, theological framework that Paul uses and and shows how it climaxes. So that's th- those are the four proponents, uh, major proponents. Now what what I do then um, is uh, I I agree with Mitchell. I think most of first Corinthians is about divisions and unity. And my nuance is chapter 15 is the perhaps, and probably the most divisive uh, resurrection be is perhaps the most divisive um, issue that he has to address. Jews themselves didn't even agree on resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. Pharisees did, did. And, but then you've got all these Greeks in here too, that don't. So there's, it's, I see it as the most divisive issue. And so if you take it from that standpoint, um, I, I align with uh, N.T. Wright that it's climaxing the eschatology. Paul has one little place, and you can do this with Insinuatio, where you kind of salt and pepper 
uh, and hint at what you're going to be getting at. Verse the only uh, mention of resurrection outside of chapter 15 is um, is uh, 614. It says, and God raised the Lord and he'll also raise us by his power. And then he moves on to whatever he's talking. So it's, it's this little, like, that's the one explicit mention of resurrection outside of chapter 15. The rest is, I think he's, he's building up by just framing everything with the eschaton and the end time. And so, uh, and then I just insinuatio itself, uh, is a rhetorical device. It, it is itself, uh, has climax built in, uh, to it. Um, and, and so that's what I, I identify Paul doing in first Corinthians. He's using insinuatio. He's indirect about resurrection at the beginning of the letter and the exordium. And instead just talks generally about, eschatology and the return of christ but later finally in chapter 15 he finally reveals what he's been waiting to say for so long throughout the first 14 chapters he couldn't bring it up earlier uh because they were too prejudiced against it but he still has to address it and he does he just does it at the end and so i'm identifying uh paul using insinuatio as the climax uh, function, you know, or feature in chapter 15, he waits until the end to bring up the most controversial prejudice topic yet. And, and that's most central to getting the Corinthians back on track with God and back on track with each other uh, as well. And, uh, and I'd also, I'd also just say, you know, it's theological, there's a theological thing, um, uh, way that it climaxes as well, because of all these ethical and communal problems that they have, I, I think all of them find their solution in a theology of the cross and the resurrection. They're failing to live out the cross. They're failing to love, you know, the, the chapter 13, uh, living out this love for one another, laying down their lives for each other, uh, living out the cross and I think it's because they have a lack of belief in resurrection. They don't believe in a God who will raise them up if they lay down their lives for one another. And, uh, and so that's, that's a big answer to, uh, to how I think it, it finds its climax in chapter 15. What else are you working on these days, Tim? I've got a few things in the works right now. Um, I, my, my big project is I'm working on an, intro, uh, an introductory guide to doing rhetorical criticism. And now there's, there's all different. I mean, it's a spectrum in and of itself. I use the historical approach where you start with the Greek and Roman rhetoric of the day and time of the New Testament. And from there, you compare and contrast uh, to see if those uh, Greco-Roman rhetorical devices are present in the New Testament. And so that's where I start from. That's the approach of my book. And so uh, so I'm working on uh, just a guide to the primary sources. I did this throughout my, uh, I had to kind of just teach myself because there's nothing really out there that's like, oh, well, here's rhetoric in Homer. Here's rhetoric in, in uh, Demosthenes. Here's, here's a guide to uh, all of Cicero's speeches. And so that's, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Um, all the notes and everything that I took during my doctoral work, I, I'm putting it together and I've got a lot more to, to put into it, but it's basically a guide to the primary uh, rhetorical sources uh, that, um, that students or, 
or scholars, if they want to do this kind of research, uh, here's a starting point instead of just figuring it out on your own, which is kind of what I did. So, um, so I'm working on that. Um, I've also got an intermediate uh, New Testament Greek uh, textbook that I'm working on. Um, I, I've taught Greek for a number of years and I, I uh, yeah, so I'm working on a second year book uh, for second year students um, that I think that I think will be really helpful. There's a lot of great first year Greek books out there, but and when you get into second year, it's just like you pull this resource and that, and I'm just trying to pull it all into one, uh, and that that's got vocab and that's got uh, translation and that's got syntax and all. So um, I'm working on that. Um, a shorter project I've got uh, right now, uh, much shorter, is uh, I'm writing a syntactical grammatical commentary on the Greek text of Jude. Little little tiny letter, but. Uh, but uh, it's 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 not simple Greek, so uh, that's that's what I'm working on uh, right now. Tim, it's been great talking with you. Thank you for being on the show, and all the best. Thanks for having me, Michael. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.